Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. The YouTube channel contains uh, all of the episodes of the podcast as well as quick take reviews and the interviews that I've done with filmmakers that are separate from the podcast. Uh, you can also check out those interviews and the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, uh, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. And but the Sonic Cinema YouTube channel uh, that is uh, you'll also get whenever I do uh, live streams on Twitch. That's also where those will be. Uh, check us out at patreoncom Cinema. Like I said, the last episode we have uh, readjusted the tiers. We now have a three-tier system. We've got a couple of new series going including Leaving the Collection as well as Life Soundtracks, where I look at an album from my collection and uh, talk about basically why I love it and why it is currently in my collection. And that is at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So this is an episode that I've had uh, on the brain since my last discussion with uh, this with today's guest, last time he was on the Sonic Cinema podcast, which was last summer. And uh, it is over is a movie that we both love. It is Spike Lee's adaptation, <clears throat> written by Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman, and starring Nicolas Cage, Meryl Streep, and Chris Cooper. Won Oscar for his role in the film. Uh, Join me is the host of Piecing It Together, as well as a composer, film composer. And a uh, producer, just in general. And please welcome back to the podcast, David Rosen. David, how are you doing tonight? I am great. I am uh, looking forward to talking about this movie, and I'm happy to uh, be back on your show. Um, before we get started, we're we, we're going to dispense the usual uh, introduction because you have been here before. But before we get started, where can people uh, find your work, whether whether it is your podcasts or whether it is your music. Yeah, well, they can find me on Twitter way too much. Uh, for the podcast, it's at PiecingPod. Uh, for my music, it's at by David Rosen, And that's the same for my websites as well. Uh, the podcast, Piecing It Together, is PiecingPod.com. And my music can all be found at ByDavidRosen.com. And I'm, of course, on Facebook and Instagram and all the other socials as well. And my podcast and music is everywhere you can listen to podcasts and music. Uh, what do you, I know you just, over the uh, holiday, you just released a new album. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Uh, it's called More Content, and it comes from a time of me working on a lot of content and as you know, I don't really like the word content, so it's definitely a self-deprecating kind of an album title. But uh, yeah, I, I was working on a lot of stuff all at once. I, I'm actually still working on all of the other stuff that was kind of happening simultaneously. I, I'm kind of prepping three albums together, and it's a huge undertaking and uh, kind of a ridiculous thing to try to do. Uh, but this, I knew from the get-go, is going to be the first release out of all that because it kind of like kicks it off with like, I'm back in time to make some more music and start to put it out there. And uh, the first uh, single from that was called Antiviral. There was a music video for that. I just put out another music video called Blacklight. 
Uh, I have a couple more music videos on the way from the album. And uh, like I said, you know, they, while I was working on it, I was working on a bunch of other music too. So uh, it's going to be a very productive time the next year or so. Yeah, definitely check it out. Um, I've had a chance to listen to it a bit, and it is, it's quite good. Um, if, you, if you like that sort of electronica with some Simac influences, uh, it's, it's definitely worth a listen, as is David's music in general. Um, one thing I did want to ask you uh, is about the music video. So when you, when you come up with the idea for a music video, uh, do you have somebody else do it? Do you produce it? Uh, what do you, What is the process uh, by which you uh, do that? Well, it depends from project to project, um, just like with any kind of like film or anything like that. Um, actually, one of the next music videos is uh, for a song called Ascending from the album, which is a, an animated like cartoon uh, music video. And that one was an idea I came up with. And then I went out looking for people that could help me actually make the thing. And uh, I found this animator who uh, put the video together and that will be coming soon. But for those first two videos from the album that you've seen already, uh, those were just kind of, there's a service called Rotor and it basically, it's like a mix of stock footage and AI and effects and all kinds of weird, cool stuff. And, um, you kind of like run the song and the beats and it like kind of analyzes the track and you pick all kinds of like uh, criteria for what you think visually it should look like. And it starts whipping it up together for you. And it, it's a wild thing. And uh, then of course, because I have to be hands-on, I then took that and messed with it a whole bunch myself. I, I'm not just like happy with just how it spits it out. That's not good enough for me. So uh, I then took like a whole bunch more time to then, you know, throw it in my video editing software and try to turn it into something that's a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more specifically me. Uh, but I'm happy with how they came out overall. And uh, I'll probably do more that way too, uh, in between working with filmmakers and stuff like that. Because I, I do want to make more uh, film-based music videos like I've done in the past and collaborate with directors and actors and all that stuff because um, I love making those kinds of videos too. Mm-hmm. No, I can imagine, and uh, yeah, that's 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 pretty cool, and it's funny because of the fact that, you know, you you bring up that uh, software does bring up the idea of uh, AI created, you know, art versus working with animators, working with filmmakers who are actually coming up with, and artists just in general who are coming up with the art in general. Um, but I mean, you know, the thing is, it's like as as musicians. I mean, I know I've definitely um, I've definitely seen this debate continue throughout the years when it comes to sampling, when it comes to uh, just making electronic music. How you're not really how it's not necessarily specifically a musician creating the sounds that right. you're doing and. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where I mean, as long as art is going on, I think this debate's going to be continuing. Absolutely, yeah, and and it's it's a complicated thing nowadays. Now that like you know, back to the album title, more content. I mean, if you're not constantly making stuff, you're you're dying as an artist, and so like you kind of need all the help you can get to like get it going at that uh, rate that that you need to kind of be out there with. Yeah. I mean that's certainly that I mean I think that's certainly the truth with 
the certainly the truth with artists. I definitely understand what you mean when it comes to that. It's definitely the truth. I think with film critics, with podcasters, you want to be coming <coughs> out with stuff on a regular basis to not only not only make sure that people are still listening to your stuff or reading your stuff, but also to keep yourself um, to to keep your chops warm when when it comes sure. to when it comes to creating. And uh, it's it's funny that we start this uh, conversation, and we have this conversation this way because we're talking about a movie today that I know you both and both of us absolutely adore, and it is about the nature of creation, the the nature of coming up with a new piece of art, and that is Spike Jones' two thousand two movie adaptation. Um, if you're not familiar with this, which after 20 years, I would think most people who are listening to this episode are familiar with it. It is the uh, it is the fictionalized version of Charlie Kaufman uh, adapting Susan Orlin's uh, book, The Orchid Thief. And he comes up with writer's block and he can't quite figure out how to crack this story and we see him with his brother Donald who seems to be inspired to create this absolutely batshit insane thriller um, but it's ultimately <laughs> it's ultimately about Kauf, Charlie Kaufman um, trying to adapt the orchid thief trying to find his way into it and I think this is this is one of those things where it is a movie about making a movie, but it's ultimately about creativity. It's about it's about figuring out what your voice is, especially when it comes to the idea of adaptation. When it comes to adapt adapting ideas that somebody else came up with. And um, David, we'll just uh, start with you. What was your first experience uh, watching this film? So I saw it in the theater when it came out, um, and I I guess I knew that it was the new movie from the guy who uh, wrote Being John Malkovich. So like I was I was in on that already, but I wasn't like I wasn't as uh, big of a Charlie Kaufman fan yet. Like at that point, I don't think I had realized that like he worked on so much like sketch comedy stuff and like Get a Life and things like that back in the day, things that I loved, but I had no idea he was in like the writer's room on stuff like that. Um, and being John Malkovich was just like this weird movie that I, I liked, but I, I didn't really necessarily fully 100% understand. And I, I was all in on Nicolas Cage at the at the moment and was very excited to see the new movie where Nicolas Cage plays, you know, twin brothers. And uh, it, it was just like this interesting, weird movie to go see. And I don't think I really knew that it was going to be such a big deal to me. Um, I remember I, I don't remember what the other movies were, but I actually saw it on a triple movie feature day. Uh, me and my buddy Brian went to the movies all day long and watched three movies. I, I got to find out what, because I think this opened in wide release on uh, in February of 2003, even though it's listed as a 2002 movie uh, because of more limited releases. So I got to find out what opened that weekend, see if I can figure out what other movies I had seen that weekend. Yeah, it was definitely, I know I saw it in 2003 in theaters um, because of the fact that, I mean, in Atlanta, we didn't necessarily get 
this type of movie uh, opening weekend. And mm. um, so I know or in December at all. So we, I mean, that happens a little bit more now because of, I, you know, I'm not sure if it's because of um, how much more of a market Atlanta is just in general, but it seems like over, we're, it, at least for us in Atlanta, we're waiting less and less for movies to uh, go into at least limited release. We tend to have at least one uh, screen showing it, even if it doesn't go into wide release. So yeah, but yeah, I know this was definitely a 2003 movie. Um, by this point, I mean, I was I was a couple of years out. I was a year or so out of college. So, I mean, I was, by this point, I was so practically obsessed with movies. It was ridiculous. And um, <laughs> so I knew this was from the team of being John Malkovich and I absolutely adored being John Malkovich uh, this was a time where I felt like I could still watch several movies multiple times in theaters I think I saw I, I think I saw being John Malkovich like three or four times I think I saw this two or three times and um, you know it's it's one of those movies where I the the way that this is set up. I mean, I'd read reviews and before this movie came out, but one of the things that the thing that really I think took me aback so much and why I had such a stronger reaction to this than I did even Malkovich is because of the fact that I, I mean, I was I'd been composing for several years. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was it was one of those things where it's like I was kind of at the time I was kind of stuck creatively. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my music. I, I'd written a couple pieces in the fall of 2002, but it wasn't necessarily something that um, was a larger inspiration for something else. So I was still very much trying to figure out uh what my voice was, and Sonic Cinema wasn't quite online, but I was still writing reviews. So it was one of those things where it's like some of these ideas that are now um, very common for people to associate with me were not that common. And I was very introverted in, in uh, mm. that respect. I was very much like Charlie in this movie, where it's yeah. like you're, you're obsessing about things, and certainly I've, I've had my bouts of anxiety, depression, and stuff like that. So when when you get that opening monologue by Kaufman that's just portrayed so beautifully by Cage, I, I, I felt that on a very personal level. And, you know, it's very funny to hear him say that. And Cage just has this beautiful way of projecting it. And it really sets the tone for the entire movie because of the fact that, like, everything... Everything we need to know about Charlie is essentially boiled down in that monologue as we're watching the opening credits. And then we see him with uh, the executive played by Tilda Swinton, who's essentially pitching him the idea of making a movie, and he's trying to decide what he wants to do with the movie while he's also we're also getting his inner monologue. And the thing that I love about this, Kaufman... Kaufman you know, when you read his career, when you read about his career and you 
see some of these sitcoms that he was involved with before he did Malkovich and before he basically became the Charlie Kaufman we've known ever since. It's it's fascinating. Like how does an how does a how does a writer get from there to I'm I'm thinking of ending things. And it's like <laughs> you you kind of are almost baffled by it, but if you look at it just through his film work, that progression makes you makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, the thing is, is I remember like, cause I was such a, a huge fan of get a life when I was a kid and I was such a huge fan of the edge, the sketch comedy show that he was a writer on. And then uh, the Dana Carvey show. Um, and I always thought of those things as being like a lot smarter than, you know, they were kind of letting on, like, I don't think you could be that stupid without being smart, you know? And so I think like the idea that um, he was back there, like kind of, you know, coming up with these really interesting, like different kind of ideas of how to make something so silly and so ridiculous, but also, uh, also really well thought out and really intricate and interesting. I mean, that's something that that kind of mind can do and then for him to start like coming into writing these features um what one other thing you know talking about the way that adaptation hit you when you first saw it um which is it's funny because it's different for me and like i've said so many times that like this is my favorite movie and it is and it's been since maybe not since the first time i watched it but soon after that uh but when i first saw it to me i i didn't really it didn't hit me on all of those levels of, of the creativity and the stuck artist and the things that he does to himself uh, to, to try to overcome that to me, it just hit me on so, so funny and clever Mm -hmm. and just how neurotic this character is and how great Nicolas Cage is in these dual roles. And it it just, you know, it just kind of just goes to show there's so many different levels to like come at this movie from. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, that that's the thing. Like, after this, this kind of... I feel like this kind of is the breaking point between, like, Nicolas Cage, Academy Award-winning actor, and, you know, somebody who, you know, even if not everything he did, did was great, you're going to get at least something interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can kind of look at his... his uh, his collaborations with Jerry Bruckheimer is part of this. With after this, you get a lot of it's str- really starting to, and a few years after, starting to get into this point where Nicolas Cage is basically in four or six movies a year. And we now know, and we know the reason is because of his financial issues, his spending. But his his performances are not necessarily what we think about. What we think about are the you know the copious amounts of junk movies that he's making. It's not necessarily like I mean I think the you know I I'm somebody who I loves I love uh, Gore Verbinski's uh, The Weatherman. I I think that is a tremendous Nicolas Cage performance. Mm-hmm. And then oh, yeah. after that, and I'll go back for, I always will go to bat for Alex Preuss's knowing, even though I acknowledge how ridiculous that is. But, um, and, sure. you have, and you have uh, Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant, uh, 
don't know, remake, follow-up, spiritual sequel, whatever you want to call it. But really, beyond those... A little of both. Yeah, beyond those, you don't really have a whole lot of other great performances until, like, Mandy and Pig. So it's not like every other year you would get a great performance out of Nicolas Cage. It was like you would have these long stretches where it's like, well, what's Nicolas Cage doing? Why is he in so so much crap? It feels like he's basically doing this, you know, for the hell of it. Um, right. But... The thing that, but one of the things that is so remarkable about his performance in adaptation, I would say it's probably, I think it's probably his best work as an actor. I, I think between the performances he gives as Charlie and Donald, I, I think he does some of the most layered work in his career. And I love that. Essentially, if you really look at the two brothers, I mean, with the exception of the way they dress, they're, they look alike. But because of the way that Cage portrays both of them, you can really see the differences in them. And it's not just in the way they... It's not necessarily in the way they speak. It's just in the way they hold themselves. And so you have the mm -hmm. introvert Charlie with the extrovert Donald. And that really it really gets to that duality that he was no doubt struggling with in, a, in making, in coming up with a direction to do adaptation. Absolutely. And it, it, it really kind of, it, it puts out there in a, in a very like tangible real way, like how broken up he is over like how stuck he is. And so you get to see both sides of that and like, but both sides really, uh, they encompass everything that there is to, to go through as a creative person, whether you're on one path or another path and they're completely different kinds of paths, but there's little bits of overlap here and there. But of course, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, how do you, uh, you know, make a fulfilling uh, full career out of yourself without having a little bit of both sides of that? And that, that's, you know, that's what he absolutely needs there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's great the way that he's able to uh, play both those parts and so well. And it, it's one of the best like dual roles, I think, uh, that, that I've ever seen. Yeah. No, he he he's he's just wonderful in this, and I I love that uh, when they were making the film. I mean, when they made the film, when it came to credits, that Donald, who does not exist, is is somebody solely done in the movie. I uh, got an Academy Award nomination, and so yeah. like I I love that that <laughs> happened. Uh, I I'm still baffled how this did not win the adapted screenplay Oscar because it's such a good it's such a great screenplay and um, the the sheer level of imagination to do something like this where it's like I'm having trouble figuring out how to adapt this story about Orchid but you, I've got this main character in LaRoche who is played by Chris Cooper, what can I do with him as a character? I've got Susan Orlean. Do I want to put her in the movie? And if so, what do I want to do with that? And I I remember, you know, I, I was reading the trivia recently, and I was 
I was not terribly surprised to learn that Orlean had hesitation with uh, giving permission for the filmmakers to portray her like this because yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure crazy shit in this movie. But uh, the thing I'm I'm so glad that she did because not only does it give us probably one of the best performances by in Meryl Streep's career, but it it also it gives us this look at an individual who is kind of stuck in the same way that Charlie is, but in a very different way. And the way that she breaks out of her shell, the way she breaks out of her rut, is this absolutely crazy, batshit, I'm going to get involved with my subject and basically become, you know... Uh, basically turn to drugs and you know to feel alive after my into my in my rutless rudderless marriage and it it gives Meryl Streep is so is is so wonderful in this movie like I I love that she we we see her as a journalist we see her as a reporter we also see her Somebody who, you know, when he, when she's first talking to LaRoche, you're like, oh, what is going on with this guy? This guy's crazy. The more she loosens up, the more you're like, I kind of see where, why she would be so entranced by LaRoche as well. And, but at the same time, I it's, it's interesting that Donald's the one who's like, you've got to talk to this woman. And it's like, I, you know, she's going to Florida. You've got to go to Florida. It's like, uh, why are we going to Florida? It's like, then you find out this crazy whole thing about it. And it's like, it, it just goes into an absolute mess of a third act that is really kind of hilarious. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, uh, Meryl Streep in this movie and Susan Orlin? I, I think she's fantastic. And it, it, like I'd say like death becomes her is like the closest thing we've ever had to Meryl Streep, like kind of letting loose in this way. Cause it is a very uh, out there kind of a role for her and she's so great in it. And uh, it's such a funny character and such a sad character, but like everybody's a sad character in this, but everybody's also really funny, which by the way, uh, you know, just to kind of also bring it back to Chris Cooper for a second, um, possibly steals the movie from everybody. I think like he is, he's so good in this and it's one of the best characters I think of any movie. As far as I'm concerned, every line out of his mouth is just so just magnetic. Like you just can't stop watching him and everything he's doing. He's so good. And uh, I'm so glad that he got like the attention that, that he deserved at the time. It's, it's uh, it would be crazy if he didn't, Um but I mean, also back to the screenplay, though, like, you know, you mentioned that opening, uh, you know, scene with uh, with Tilda Swinton, with his agent. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he says he says during that scene um, how he doesn't want to ruin the book and turn it into a Hollywood thing. And then just the way that every single thing in that third act ends up being all the things he didn't want the movie to end up being mm-hmm. is just such such beautiful meta layers. Like I don't think meta has ever been done as well as it's been done in, in adaptation. And I, I mean, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Like I, I, I loved it when the new Matrix did it, like, you know, a couple of years ago. Like I, I love meta stuff, and and it's like 
this is really just the top. This is as far as you can go with it. Yeah. No, I mean, the meta stuff is is where it gets really, really fun and gets into the world of the abs- absurd. And, I mean, that's where having a... That's where having a filmmaker like Spike Jones uh, directing this really matters because of the fact that, um, you know, he was he was a music video director. He was best known for, I think, basically, he was best known, I think, for a lot of his collaborations with Beastie Boys and sure. filmmaker and artists like that who won really unique uh, music videos. I mean, you know, you you could you could do an entire podcast series on the uh, on uh, the filmmakers who were music video filmmakers who became uh, featured directors. Sure, I mean, Michelle I, Gondry also another Charlie Kaufman collaborator. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he had done um, and Michelle Gondry not only did. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but he also did Human Nature, which came out. I think it's technically a 2001 movie, but I know I saw it in 2002. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's interesting because of the fact that uh, Spike Jones did such a great job directing being John Malkovich. And you feel like when you look at the direction in that one, it, it really could only come from... He could... He's the only filmmaker who could visualize how to make that premise work from mm-hmm. a visual standpoint. And but with adaptation, it's getting into something that to a certain extent is a little bit more natural, but also has a large degree of gonzo filmmaking because of the fact that you're relying so much on narration. You have this you have these twin brothers who one of whom doesn't exist. And it's it's basically you're you're turning these real characters into cartoons in a large degree, so uh, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where there are so many things that you're bouncing, and the way it goes back and forth in time, the way that you've got uh, fantasies from Charlie, and you've got. Uh, panic attacks in Charlie that you're visualizing. And it's just it's just such a feat of imagination. The direction is in this movie is just as important as the writing is in helping us navigate this uh what we're seeing on screen. Absolutely. Yeah. And it and it is a really good looking movie. And uh, you know, uh, the cinematography is is great in it. And like there's certain scenes. I mean, first of all, just shout out to particular like kind of um i don't want to say like out there scenes but like like not uh nicholas cage focused scenes um you know you've got first of all one of the best like montages ever it's like such a like a ridiculous thing to like show 40 million years go by like that or 40 billion years and i mean that's like a total spike jones like you know that you need that kind of imagination to pull something off like that um, but then also uh, another thing, a much darker scene, the the moment where we learn uh, what happened to Chris Cooper and his family with that car crash, I I still maintain that is the the scariest, most horrifying car crash I've ever seen in a movie. And, uh, you know, the the way that uh, the way that he filmed that is just it, it's not exactly showy. It's just the most effective thing I've 
ever seen it. It just, it horrifies me every time I see it. Yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think this, you know, it's like he got the nominee, he got the Oscar nomination for Malkovich and probably should have won that year. But um, he really should have gotten nominated for this one as well. I mean, you know, this one, this one got, was more for, people really recognize this one more for the uh, performances and the writing naturally. But the way Spike Jones directs it, it really does point us in the direction of how he would later do Where the Wild Things Are in Her when he was yeah. separate from Kaufman. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, you, you, see the, uh, you see the level of realism that also borders on surrealism in this movie. And the cinematography by Lance Accord is such a huge part of it. And the fact that it's not... This movie is not a super slick film. It, it feels... There's, there's a lot of it that it, it feels like it was made on film, which is one of the things that I absolutely love about it. But it's also something that kind of feels like you're following... It's not necessarily... It's almost like a step beyond a mockumentary in a way. It almost feels, to a certain extent, the way that it progresses, it sort of feels akin to the Christopher Guest mockumentary. Would you uh, kind of see that comparison? Oh, sure. I, I could see definitely some of that. And especially, um, you know, as a, you know, as, as a uh, mocking, like the creative uh, nature and just, just how neurotic, like those kind of creative people are for sure. You, you know, also, also like kind of a little bit of a tangent, but like speaking to how Spike Jones sh shoots this thing, I've always wondered, I've never, like, one of these days I'm going to, like, do a deep dive. As many times as I've seen this movie, I've never, like, read too much about the background of filming it or anything like that. I've always wondered about the scene, uh, well, there's a couple of scenes that take place on the set of Being John Malkovich mm -hmm. and how that was pulled off. Because, like, it looks so seamlessly real, like they filmed it on the set, but I, I can't imagine that they did. This was a couple years later. And I don't think that they were already working on this, so I I don't I don't know how they pulled that off so real. Right. No, I mean I and yeah that that is an excellent question. I mean that that certainly looks like I mean it looks like it's done on like sixteen millimeter or eight millimeter almost. Well, probably closer to sixteen millimeter. But sure. Um, yeah, I mean you that is that is another thing as well. It's like did so they got those actors those exact actors, those exact uh, costumes back together just to do those <laughs> scenes. Uh, and, you know, it's like, man, you feel for the extras in the uh, Malkovich scene where it's like John Malkovich is saying, okay, so we're, we're going we're gonna to get all of our lighting figured out. We're getting all of our camera <laughs> stuff figuring out. I'm saying that not for me, but I'm saying that for everybody in the masks. And it's like, <laughs> did... You're you're absolutely right. Did you did they seriously just you do wonder if some of it is footage from behind the scenes of Malkovich? How did they get so seamlessly integrated with the stuff with uh Cage as Charlie Kaufman? Yeah. Um it, the only <laughs> that, way that's what Spike Jones does. Yeah. That's Spike Jones knows how to do it. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, 
but yeah, you're you're absolutely right about Cooper. And it's like that, especially the scene where we do find out what happened to his parents. And but also, I love the scene, and it's a very funny scene. It's when they're in the van. He's talking about all of these things that he was uh, fascinated with over the years, like fish and turtles and stuff like that, and how he basically just goes from hobby to hobby. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's, she's like, really? You, you said that was the most important thing to you, and you just, you know, you just threw it away? It's like, yeah. And, I mean... You know, in in a way, it's 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 one of those things where it's like I think I think one of those things one of the things about that scene it's not just a very funny scene, but also points to the idea that LaRoche is somebody who very definitively knows who he is. Like he knows what he's about, and he knows that all of those things that were his passion, quote unquote. We're just kind of leading him in the direction towards orchids. And, mm. you know, so for Susan, she's confronted by this person who seems like he's very flighty. It seems like he has, he just can't quite get together. But at the same time, the way he speaks, he completely has it together. Which, so yeah. that, that contradiction is. What makes LaRoche such a fascinating character? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, bullshitters can be, like, really uh, interesting to be around, you know? <laughs> and so I I, I think, uh, you know, for, for someone like the Charlie Kaufman character or somebody like Susan Orlean's character, they both are, you know, they both want to feed off of that a little bit because they're both so, like, stuck in their own heads and, like, to get a little bit of that without going so far into being like this kind of loser weirdo guy, like, but like just to get a little bit of that openness and uh, Donald in a way is kind of the middle man. He's kind of like a little bit of both. Uh, although he certainly is a little uh, more on the LaRoche side of things. <laughs> he's, uh, he's not too smart. So we, we both established the fact that we both saw these, this in 2003. What did you, did you think back to, Donald's pitch for the three when you were watching Identity that same year, like a couple months later? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I remember thinking it was the funniest thing in the world, and I still do, like, the, the pitch for the three. I kind of want to, like... Maybe I'll do a piecing it together about it. Like every movie that could be could inspired by Donald's screenplay. I, I think that would be a great uh, special episode of piecing it together. Well, I think I think there's a Rennie Harlan movie that's kind of Mind Hunters, not the not mm-hmm. the David Fincher Netflix show, but there was a Rennie Harlan movie in like 2005, 2006, I think that was uh, it was called Mind Hunters, and I think it's the same kind of premise. But yeah, it's like it was funny watching, I watching this a couple of times and then watching Identity a couple months later. It's going, this is kind of similar to what we're seeing. What what Donald's pitching in the three, but I, I, I love his, the, the thing that sells that is, is just blatant, his, his just brazen confidence himself to be able to pull that idea (laughs) off, which is a ludicrous idea. But at the same time, it's something where it's like, uh, you, 
you feel like he's cracking that he he's cracking that story as he's going on, even if he doesn't get the metaphors right. And uh, you know, I I love where it's like, oh, it's a metaphor between technology versus force. It's like, not really. That's pretty direct. I mean, you know, ways ways pitching this chase <laughs> scene, and. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of what Donald is doing is inspired by a screenwriting course he took from Robert Mickey, who is a real screenwriting guru, uh, played yeah. magnificently in this movie by Brian Cox. And, he's so good. Uh, he, he's amazing, just in everything he does. And, uh, you know, is the, the, payoff, the thing that I love about that, you have the payoff of... Not only do you kind of see what a blowhard he is and, you know, the confidence of saying, oh, this is how you do screenwriting. But I love that that is essentially the lowest point for Charlie. Like, what <laughs> am I doing? I'm getting, I'm doing this screenwriting course. What is the, what am I doing? And then that's also where he has his biggest revelation where it's like, where he says, I'm writing this story where nothing happens, and it's like, you know, just like life. And he and McGee goes after him about it. And it's like, nothing happens in life? Are you sure? And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we you you think about life and you 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 feel like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I to a certain extent, yeah, everyday life is not terribly interesting. But you're going to have moments in throughout where there are, there are interesting thing, things that happen that create a narrative. And so, you know, I, I love the, uh, you know, I, I love the scene between McKee and Charlie in, in the bar where, he's, where Charlie's trying to say, I need to figure out a way to make this pure. I want to make this pure. And McKee's like, no, no, no. What you have to do is add the drama. And then mm -hmm. I, I love the line that he says, wow them in the end, and you've got hits. And yeah. really, that's all it boils down to. That's what any film boils down to. It's like, you wow them in the end, and you got hit. I mean, honestly, it's, it's the mantra of James Cameron's career. If you think yeah, about sure. It. Like, wow them in the end, and you've got hit. He's done that with Aliens. He's done with, that with the two Terminator movies. He did that with Titanic. Done that with the two Avatars. That's why he knows what he's doing. That's why audiences resonate with him, and he knows how to do it in a technically interesting way. Absolutely, absolutely. I I love. By the way, I uh, the 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 moment that like gets him to his lowest, where he ends up going to New York and ends up going to the Robert McGee uh, screenwriting course is when, uh, when Charlie's agent uh, played by Ron Livingston, uh, another character we haven't really mentioned yet. Yeah. He says, uh, maybe you could bring your brother on to help you with the orchard <laughs> thing. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like a dagger through the heart. When I hear that line. <laughs> well, and, and, and because of the fact that it's like, man, I, he, He's going off, and it he it's funny because of the fact that you think, oh, he's talking about pages that Charlie's, you know, given him, and then all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 the three, it's a terrific screenplay. 
<laughs> and it's like, no, you're you're absolutely right. But what does he end up doing? He ends up bringing Donald on, and that's where the whole third act gets to. Um, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's you know, and and the thing is, it's like you look at. It's funny because of the fact that you look at that McKee scene, and you know he he. He he says that like Casablanca is greatest screenplay ever made and sele- ever written, and you know you think about it, it's like well I mean I'm not sure I'm sure there are others that I really like but really what you what where it makes sense that he says that is the fact that there's and I mean Grant it's completely absurd the idea that that's one of the greatest screenplays ever made because of the fact that they were constantly redoing it during production but i mean that's pretty much (laughs) natural nowadays but the fact of the matter is it's like it knows what it's trying to do it knows what it's trying to get at and it's filled with absolutely memorable moments that you never forget it makes sense that he would say that um and uh you know that's that's one of the things where it's like you know screenwriting i i really enjoy screenwriting along the lines of what coffin does he i i i adore him as a as as a storyteller uh i may not love all of his films uh collectively but i'm fascinated by what he does and i'm fascinated by the way he does it <laughs> but at the same time I I completely see why some people would gravitate towards <clears throat> towards something that's more standard and traditional. I mean, you know, we we've seen this debate on Twitter when it hasn't been imploding with the adapted screenplay nomination for Top Gun Maverick. It's like why mm-hmm. did that get a screenplay nomination? And you think, and people, the people who have defended that have made some great points because of the fact that it knows what the hell it's doing and it knows what the hell is important in that story. It's like, it's not just about doing anything complex or bold. It's about telling the story and whatever you think of Top Gun Maverick, that screenplay knows how to tell that story. Yeah, it's it's the perfect version of let's make a new Top Gun movie after yeah. thirty years. Like it it could it couldn't have been written better, honestly, for what it's trying to accomplish. But you know, the thing is, is like we've talked about the main actors. We you brought up Ron Livingston. There's almost Kara Seymour, who's in a very lovely role as a. Amelia, who's a uh, mm-hmm. cellist that Charlie has feelings for. You get a small role by Judy Greer in this movie as a waitress. And, uh, you know, it's like you... And then Maggie Gyllenhaal is in this as a as Catherine Keener's hairstylist. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to see all of... A lot of these actors who would later become much more household names. I mean, Judy Greer, not so much, but I mean, you, chances are, if you watch TV, if you watch movies enough, you will recognize Judy Greer on a pretty regular basis. But, um, you know, it's, and then Maggie Joan Hall, I mean, she's 
you know, few years after this, she was in the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight, and uh, she was in Secretary yeah. this year in two thousand two. So, uh, you know, it's it's just one of those things where uh, the way they were, they got so many great actors and memorable actors in small roles is it's it's a testament to what Kaufman and Jones were doing in this movie that they were able to get these characters for even a couple minutes on screen yeah absolutely you know one one uh quick one to throw in there as well that I didn't even realize until like a few months ago actually after seeing this movie dozens and dozens of times I never realized it but uh, Doug Jones, uh, as his character's name is Augustus Marguerite, I believe. But um, it's the the first. It's the flashbacks of the first guy who ever got a, a ghost orchid, and he dies of dysentery. And uh, and and that's Doug Jones from all like the creature stuff, uh, you know, oh. Pan's Labyrinth and all those things. Well, and to be fair, we rarely see him outside makeup. So yeah, kind of right. Why we miss that i didn't even think about that but and that's also another great touch by uh spike jones in the way he does that one the way he does the darwin sequence and uh Mm -hmm. it's 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 really um it's it's really uh quite quite something that you have these sequences you were talking about the flashback to like 40 billion years you know, the beginning of time and, you know, the way that flashback works. And it's, it's just such a, it's such a great uh, piece of Spike Jones directing where it's like, Oh yeah, yeah you, you were just going to uh, do this simple little setup and have this guy as like a Spanish conquistador dressed up as a Spanish conquistador for like 10 seconds of screen time. And uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that really adds texture to this film. And uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. What is, uh, what, what are your thoughts on Charlie Kaufman, the writer versus Charlie Kaufman, the writer director? So, I mean, I've loved the movies that he has directed, and I I hope somebody gives him money to make another one sometime. It seems like he had so much trouble uh, getting funding. Uh, but I I do hope that he will, uh, you know, work with some really great directors again at some point, because I do think that Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry brought out the best in him. And I would like to see more stuff like, like adaptation, like Eternal Sunshine, like being John Malkovich. Um, although, you know, his other films, I mean, well, I, I guess uh, Anomalisa is also a collaborative effort as well. He didn't uh, just direct that alone. Uh, but, you know, Synetic is a masterpiece as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he can do it, absolutely. Um, but I, I think that he kind of... Uh, starts to become too much of himself, just like the character Charlie Kaufman here in in the movie. And um, you know, I I I think it would be good for him to 
collaborate with someone again at some point. I mean, we'll see what happens. I know he always has at least three or four projects in the works. Some are that he's going to direct, some are collaborations. Um, they always fall through, it feels like. I, I know there's been like at least four films over the years that didn't come to fruition or or series as well. Um, but I'm just, I'm basically just living from Charlie Kaufman project to Charlie Kaufman project. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of with you. It's like I would like to see him work with uh, work with directors, not necessarily Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry again, although, I mean, it feels like Gondry has kind of fallen off over the past few years as well. Like, we haven't really heard yeah. his name a whole lot since probably Silence of, Science of Sleep, I think was the last really significant feature it sure seems that way. I remember from him, but uh, oh, he did. Uh, he did the Green Hornet, didn't he? Oh yeah, that's right. He did do Green Hornet. Yeah, you're right. Um, which I I actually. But since then, more, nothing. So yeah, which I actually enjoyed more than most yeah. people. But um, no, yeah, it's and I mean, Grant Spike Jones is another filmmaker who has seemed to struggle to get funding now, even though he won an Oscar for her. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, I kind of I, I'm kind of with you, especially about adaptation and eternal sunshine. Schenectady is a wonderful film. It's a dense film. Like mm -hmm. I, I had a hard time getting into that one the first time. Second time I started to appreciate it a bit more. And I, it was kind of the same way with I'm thinking of ending things. Anomalisa I've only seen once, but I did quite love it but at the same time i haven't been necessarily anxious to revisit it i uh, mm. you know i uh, it's one of those things it's where, depressing as hell yeah <laughs> um it's uh yeah it's it's have you read the have you read his book yet and kind i've not um it, it's hard for me to get into reading i'll, I'll be perfectly honest uh it's it's kind of yeah. hard for me to get into reading but um no, I, 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 I can't imagine what that's like. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you where it's like it, you can kind of tell they, he's sort of getting into, he gets a way into his head as a director. And, you know, seeing him maybe collaborate, you know, again, not necessarily with Gondry or Jones, but different filmmakers whom, you know, he might be able to bounce off, off of as collaborators. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that would be interesting. Definitely. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward. I, I think it'll happen at some point soon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where we may have to wait for a project of his. I mean, let's face it. It's only been a, it's only been a two, three years since I'm thinking of ending things. So it's not like it's been the drought that Spike Jones has had where it's been 10 years since her. But sure. um, what are, you know, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about in this, uh, this discussion, we've talked about a lot of our, uh, a lot of our favorite and uh, what, what are some moments to you that really kind of, what are some other moments that we may not have touched on yet that have really stand out to you? So there's a lot. Um, I, I, okay. I, I'll bring up, I'll bring up two that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, so first, 
First up is uh, the elevator scene uh, where Charlie is going to to uh, meet Susan Orlean. And uh, he, he gets in the elevator and she walks into the elevator and he just absolutely cannot speak to her. And I, I don't know if there's a more pitiful, but also more, uh, you know, a scene that I could connect with more, <laughs> more than that. Uh, it's, uh, it's incredible the way that he plays that. And um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing to, to speak, you know, to how, how amazing Nick Cage is in this. He, he does that so well. It's so good. Um, the other one I'll say is um, when Susan Orlean, uh, Meryl Streep's character, finally decides to try the drug that's extracted from the orchid and she's alone in her hotel room <laughs> and on the phone with, uh, with John LaRoche and um, basically starting to trip on this drug. And uh, I, again, you know, it's, we don't get to see uh, Meryl Streep cut loose like this very often, but um, <laughs> it is, it is a wild performance and it, it really just feels so real and lived in the way that she is tripping in that hotel room. Yeah, that those are those are both great moments. I I mean, you know, it's it's not necessarily a small moment, but it's one that I have always really loved because of the fact that it kind of gets to the difference between uh, somebody who kind of ex- lives completely in their brain and somebody who is very aware of who they are. And mm-hmm. uh, but both of them are aware of who they are, but one is plagued with this anxiety and then the other one is just accepting of who they are and uh you know it seems more clear head it's the moment in the swamp after uh as they're being chased by laroche and uh orlean and uh there's that great moment where it's like charlie's talking to donald about you know this one crush donald had in high school and you know he says it's like oh yeah she was she she was making fun of you she she was joking it's like and Donald's like well that was that's her business that's not yeah you know it's like those that was how she reacted that's not how I reacted and you know it gets to the point of you are who you love not who loves you uh Mm -hmm. you are what not what loves you and uh you know that's that's something that's it's such a simple idea but it's also something that it really gets to it really gets to the idea of filmmaking it really gets to the idea of creating something because of the fact that you know the filmmaking process may be a pain in the ass and uh, the creative process may be frustrating and a pain (laughs) in the ass but the important thing is to really dive into it and find something that you love. You know, if it's something that you love, that's the most important thing. You know, it's not that it it, it doesn't have to be easy. We prefer it to be easy, but it doesn't have to be easy. The important thing is, do we find it rewarding? And I think that's one of the things that yeah. really hits home at the end of this movie with uh, Charlie when it comes to kind of realizing what you can do with this script. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, it, it, it's a great lesson. It's like something that people need to remember. But at the same time, it's another of those things that Charlie Kaufman, the character, did not want to happen in his movie that he was writing. So uh, that, that always makes me laugh, too. So, 
Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and one one person we have not mentioned, and uh, you know, I I know you and I as composers, no doubt, have an affection for. And I I love this score of his, uh, Carter Burwell. Oh yeah. Uh, so good. He's such a tremendous composer. I love his collaborations with Spike Jones in Malkovich and this and what, where the wild things are. Um, it's this is this is I don't know if I would put it in my top three, but it's definitely in my top five. Uh, Carberwell scores. I you know it's if you're if you're familiar with his work for the Coen Brothers, some of these ideas will seem familiar. You kind of Here's the way he builds some of the same motifs melodically speaking, but this one really does kind of seem to be something else entirely, maybe a bit more exotic in the way that, even though it's not really exotic, but the way it leans into percussion and the way it leans into more rhythmic uh, motifs compared to something like Fargo or Miller's Crossing or even like the Banshees of Insurance, which got him an Oscar nomination recently. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's really, it. even though it's, you can definitely tell it's a Burwell score, it also feels very different from what we're familiar, used to from Burwell. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, it fits right in with a lot of what he's done in the past and, and what he's done since then. And yeah, I, I would definitely uh, draw comparisons with what he just did last year uh, with the Banshees of Inishirin. Um, But I, I think it's such a fantastic score. And I actually just listened to it for the first time ever, like on its own. I, as many times as I, as I've seen this movie, I've never like sat down and just listened to the score and oh, it is such a great score to just listen to. And I really shouldn't be surprised because I, I've always loved the music in the film. Um, but yeah, the way that he takes those motifs and like keeps coming back to them, but doing them in slightly different ways as, you know, the character is evolving and as the story is is going from weird to slightly more dark and a little bit Hollywoody as, as the action starts to unfold and all those things that we talked about, the meta-ness of it all. Um, you know, it, it really, it makes the, the score grow and evolve in different unique ways. And it's really inspiring, honestly, like, uh, you know, as a composer, like that's something that I haven't done a lot in my own work. And I, it makes me realize like how much I want to like push myself the next time I'm working on a film to, you know, take those ideas and continue to make them change throughout while, you know, returning to the same, uh, the same sounds and the same, uh, same melodies, but, but making them evolve, evolve and grow as the character is. And it's, it's just really cool with the work that he's doing here. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a wonderful movie. It, it's such a wonderful score. It, I, I will always be baffled at how it took Carol to finally get him an Oscar nomination. Uh, because I, I kind of feel like he should have had an Oscar by that point. If, oh, yeah. if not for this score, at least for um, something like Fargo or Miller's Crossing or something they did for the Coen brothers. Because yeah. his, his work's always been tremendous. And I, 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 loved his, uh, I loved his work for uh, Tragedy of Macbeth for Joe Kellner. Oh, sure. I, I thought he did amazing work in that. And, 
that's that's something that really does kind of feel out of the box, but at the same time, you listen to his scores, and it feels very, like you said, it feels very familiar for his mm-hmm. his stuff. Um, Banshees, absolutely. You know, Banshees uh, very much feels like a Car Burwell score, and uh, you know it, it. But the thing that strikes me when listening to that separate is how dark it gets to it really does play up how much of a dark comedy that movie is the music does yeah absolutely yeah it's uh it's great it's so playful but you know playing into just how dark the story gets so uh yeah that's a great one i also really love his anomalisa score Mm -hmm. uh do you have any more uh thoughts on adaptation or anything that you want to say before we wrap up I mean, I think I'm just looking. I had written down a bunch of notes, but I, I think we got like most of most of the important stuff. Um, yeah, it's just all those scenes between Charlie and Donald are just they're they're gold. They're they're <laughs> they're they're a gift. They're so funny, and uh, it, it's one of those one of those uh, characters that like it doesn't come along very often something something that weird and out there and awesome and everyone involved just absolutely nails everything about this whether it's the script the directing or nicholas cage and everybody else who he's playing off of and uh yeah it, it's a gift this movie yeah um this is this is this has been one of my favorite movies of ever since i pretty much saw it i i just fell in love with it immediately and uh I you know I mean for for a lot of the reasons that I talked about earlier, as far as uh, my journey as a composer and even as a film critic to a certain extent, but also it it's just such a it's such a wildly enjoyable movie. It's such a wildly inventive movie that it's it's hard not to it's hard not to appreciate this movie even if you just look at it as an absurdist comedy. It, even if you just look at it from a comedic standpoint, it's hard not to appreciate this movie as a piece of entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then even, and then when you look at deeper, that's when you start to realize, oh, this is, I mean, it is that, but it's also this. And yeah. I, I, I love that. And it's absolutely wonderful movie. And, uh, David, thank you very much for joining me to talk about this. I knew when I I think you had said something about adaptation being one of your your favorite movie of all time. And so that's what got me got into my head to ask you if you wanted to cover because I'd wanted to talk about it. And yeah. uh, I appreciate you making the uh time to join me to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me back on. And uh yeah, I mean uh, listeners of piecing it together know I bring up adaptation like any chance I can get. So uh, I'm happy to like actually sit and talk about it for like a full hour like this. Yeah. And, um, you know, piecing it together. I mean, I've been on a few times. We've talked about Shang-Chi. We've talked about the Batman. We've talked about Prey. You know, it's it's and one of the things that I've always enjoyed about my discussions with uh, David, especially in that arena, is it's really made me think about well, what movies kind of, what movies am I thinking about? What other movies does this movie think make me think about? Not necessarily in a bad way, but 
what does it what movies seem to be part of the DNA of this movie? And I, I think that's, you know, the thing about adaptation we've kind of talked about where it's like you can see that idea of that DNA of a movie. This isn't just about Spike Jones' previous work. This isn't just about Charlie Kaufman's previous work. This is getting to some of the struggles that filmmakers have honestly been talking about ever since ever since movies were created. I mean, you know, I know when I uh, rewrote my print review, it's like one of the movies that remind me, that adaptation remind me of in 2002 was Eight and a Half, the Fellini film. I mean, if you've mm -hmm. seen that film, it's it, you can definitely see that. But I also kind of, I, I also kind of felt that way thinking, rewatching it this time, having the Fablemans in my head, thinking that maybe Spielberg and Kushner kind of had that idea when it came to writing the character of Sammy Fableman in that movie, because of the fact that he's, you see his struggle with what, not only what life means, but what art represents, and how to stay true to both of those things, especially when you get to the dilemma with what he sees his the revelations with his family and to see seeing that his family is not as perfect as he thought it was and mm -hmm. i love that a filmmaker like spielberg finds that same kind of way in in a very different way that kaufman does and it what it basically shows is that these these struggles for filmmakers are universal. Doesn't matter whether you're the biggest, whether you're the biggest filmmaker of a generation, or if you're one of the most unique filmmakers of a generation at Kaufman. Is. Absolutely, yeah. It's definitely a universal thing that everybody in every kind of creative field goes through, I think, at some point. Yes, indeed. Um, but yeah, that being said, uh, David, once again, thank you very much for having me, and we'll definitely be doing this again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your show, and uh, I, I look forward to doing it again for sure. I'd like to thank David for joining me today to talk about a movie that I have loved ever since it came out, and uh, he shares that affection for. Adaptation is one of those movies that I think if you... Uh, if you remember my 40 movies to shape my 40 years, I believe Adaptation was on that list. And uh, it's, it's one that I've loved ever since I saw it. Uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Uh, we've got some great episodes, including a return to the Renegade uh, Film Festival, more talk on the Oscars with Amanda Spears, as well as another uh, guest joining us for the first time to talk about uh, a classic movie actress that he has wanted to talk about. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing those episodes with you. Once again, check us out wherever, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can click subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Check us out, patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, or uh, my written work at www.sonic-cinema.com.